Well, hello and welcome to the Mariner's Library, with me, Chris Stanmore-Major. In this episode, we're concluding the book, The Cruises of the Joan, by W.E. Sinclair. This is part 16 of the reading, and we're finishing up with chapter 22. If you haven't already, please consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner, and there for $5 a month, you can help support the podcast. And starting now in January of 2023, We've also got a separate series of books being read over there for the Patreon supporters at patreon.com forward slash the Mariner. So if you need some extra content, another story or two, uh, that's the place to get it at patreon.com forward slash the Mariner. Now on with the last chapter of the story. Chapter 22, The End. After a week's stay in Reykjavik, we left with regret and a determination to return some future summer. Our next passage, we were now decided, must be to Newfoundland. The season was getting on, and we had now no leisure time to spare for a visit to any port of Greenland. But we laid a course for Cape Farewell on Greenland anyway, since it was nearly our line to Bell Island in Newfoundland, and it would make an excellent point from which to take a last, fresh departure for America. A short beat to windward enabled us to get clear of the harbour and approaches, and we then had a fine run to the score, It was in the early evening that we cleared this point, and with a single reef in our mainsail, laid our course for Cape Farewell. We had fair winds again all the way, when we had any wind at all. As in our passages to Iceland, we often had to lie too because of the heaviness of wind and sea. Yet one day in particular, I recall, when we were becalmed under a clear blue sky and a brilliant warm sun, a group of gulls remained floating near us all day, We enticed them quite easily within reach, and the mate took several photographs of them. One of the birds was a beautiful fellow, and his photograph had a whole snap to itself. But the winds were not always too strong or too weak, and we made 700 miles to Cape Farewell in eight days, a run which put us on very good terms with ourselves. Another week as good as that would see us within sight of America. We sighted the snow and ice-covered mountains of Greenland on August the 20th, The northern lights were seen several times, but only once did we see any fine display. Curtains and spirals of pale green light gleamed wherever we looked, all arranged around a single point as a focus. Cones and volutes and shafts and columns shone and faded and changed. I have no idea whether this display was an average one or not. It was the only time that we could call the display anything like fine. One day, when the wind, which was right aft, had grown too strong for all our sails except the foresail, we experimented with this one small sail by setting it as a raffee. We took off all the hanks except the top one from the forestay and sheeted both the tack and clue to the shrouds. It made a capital little sail for running, as comfortable for the steersman as he could wish. Still, he had to steer. There was never any suggestion that the boat would steer herself. We tried her, gave her every encouragement, but she always insisted in swinging into the wind until the raffi was aback. But it saved all the silly slatting and lifting and rolling around itself, which the foresail used to practice when it was not set in the usual fore-and-aft manner. Only, it was so small that it could not drive the boat along fast enough to please us. I believe we might have done very nicely if we could have had a bigger sail of this simple and safe design. For twenty-four hours we sailed gently and slowly within sight of Cape Farewell, the southernmost point of Greenland, and although the temptation to make for a port on the west coast of this country was great, we resisted it, 
laying a course for St. John's Harbour, Newfoundland instead. This was the nearest port where we might be sure of finding the charts we should want if we were to find our way along the American coast. As things turned out, there was no need to waste any of our mental energy in resisting the temptation to visit Greenland. Circumstances removed it from the category of temptation. A northerly wind came, which soon increased, as we had become accustomed to expect, to a strength beyond what we desired. I was pleased it was a northerly wind, for that did at least drive us away from a terrible coast. Lee shores in bad weather are all to be dreaded, but on many of them we might have had a chance of escaping with our lives. On this coast we should have none, and so we did not grumble at being driven away from it. For ten days we went south or west or east. Eastward we went at times because we were driven that way against our will. South we went when we could not lay a better course. Whenever we had a favourable wind, we kept the yacht going as hard as we could as long as we dared. When the wind and the sea became too much for us, we hove to or lay to a sea anchor to wait. There was a deal too much sea anchor business during these ten days. We became too skilful in handling the thing because we had perforce to practice with it so often. Sea anchors may be useful, but nobody wants to live all his life behind one. It seems to me, said Jackson one day, when he felt inspired, that we are having a more strenuous time on this passage than we expected. I shall be very glad, indeed, to reach St. John's and be clear of this part of the world. And I, too, should have been glad to see myself in a safe harbour and at the end of our passage. The weather seemed to have developed a special spite against us. It was always coming for us. My remembrance of these ten days is now a confused one of high seas and heavy winds, which the Joan could make nothing of in the way of sailing. Although the winds were mostly fair, or at least they gave us a lead to our port, we worried our way for only 200 miles during these ten days. The boat behaved splendidly. Nobody could ask more of a little ship so far as mere safety was concerned, and there was no need to ask for more. But we grew heartily sick of the eternal lying too, for the weather to moderate. On the last day of August, we got sailing strong and well. We thought gaily of the miles we should reel off if only the wind and sea kept as they were. Jackson's watch was from eight o'clock till midnight. He sailed her with her full mainsail, but I could hear and feel as I lay on my bunk that reefing would be necessary before long. I knew, in fact, that it ought to be done at once, but after all, we wanted to get along our way, and I wanted my watch in, and it was Jackson's duty to decide when a reef was wanted. If he chose to make himself beastly unhappy out there, well, he could do so. I was happy enough inside. Everybody knows this reasoning process, but at eleven o'clock I had to put on my clothes and we took down two reefs and stowed the jib. I sailed her under her reefed main for half an hour and got soaked for my pains, so I tried steering from inside with a pair of tiller lines, but that was very awkward. With a hard wind right aft, she wanted more careful steering than could be given her by that method. Then we packed up the main altogether, and I let her run under her foresail as she liked. It was in a way an experiment. Jackson and I had talked of heaving to stern first, and I thought that if the foresail would only act as a riding sail, we might lie to stern on, and yet be driving quite satisfactorily upon our course. Once before we had sheeted the foresail aback, and she had run very well and steadily for a time. I tried this now, but it was a complete failure. She would just keep jibing over and lying to with the wind abeam on the wrong tack. Then I let her lie hove to under the foresail with this wind on the best tack for us. When, however, towards the end of my watch a nasty splash came over, I thought it time to put the sea anchor over once more. On the 1st of September, at 6 o'clock in the morning, 
we put out the sea anchor for the fourth or fifth time and then turned in to wait till that particular gale blew itself out. The yacht rode the seas well, yet not so well as she had been used to in former years and in other waters. Although the wind was steady in direction, the waves came from all over the place and the boat swung among them wildly. I did not altogether understand the cause of this and could only put it down to the action of the waves as they caught her at different angles. The sea anchor was acting thoroughly well. There were moments when I even thought it too efficient, for frequently the mizzen sail shook violently as the boat swung too close to the wind. Every time this happened, I wondered how often the spars would endure it. The boom, which was a new one, I had made thicker in the middle than the old one had been. I thought that it could be trusted to stand more than the bumpkin. Twice during the day, the yacht changed tack. Whenever this happened, we had to shift the boom over to the weather side. This was necessary because we always lashed it down on deck, where, besides the fact that its weight was in a better place, it also screened us largely from the spray and water that washed over us. During the Jones Madeira cruise, we had been able generally to keep the sliding hatch of the cabin open during our sea anchor spells, but on this voyage, we were never able to permit this. Water was always slung into the cabin if we left it open. The periods of lying to the drogue were never so restful as they had been in former years, and as I had become accustomed to think that they would always be, and the change in this respect was, to say the least, unwelcome. Before nightfall, I made my round of the yacht to see that all was in order and to do anything that occurred to me to ensure the safety of the yacht. The sea anchor warp stretched away as it should do and the anchor itself was plainly doing its work well. The chain, which was shackled to the end of our warp to take all chafe, had its guard secure so that the chain itself could not be jerked out of the fairlead. The poles, which held the chain, were lashed down. They could not lift as they had done the first time we had laid two in this fashion, the bobstay was hauled up and safely out the way in case the boat swung round again on the other tack. The shroud lanyards were all tight and quite unworn. The mainsail and its spars were tightly lashed to the deck and rail in such a manner that the canvas received no chafe. The tiller was lashed in the manner I thought best. I never did convince myself which was the best way of dealing with the rudder. All ways had been tried. We had lashed the tiller up and we had lashed it down. We had lashed it amidships and we had removed the lashing altogether so that the rudder was left free to swing about as it liked. Whatever we did seemed bad. The only good thing to do was to remove the rudder and bring it aboard, but this was ruled out because we saw no clear way of shipping it again while we were afloat in the open sea. Then I overhauled the mizzen sheet, and lastly I pumped out the very little water that was in the boat and stowed the pump loose in the cockpit. We considered this quite safe, for the pump was made of iron and it fitted conveniently along two sides of the cockpit. I glanced round again and tried to think of anything else I could do. There was nothing else but to leave the Joan to fight it out herself, as she had done many times before. Returning to the cabin, I lit the riding light which we lashed to the mast on the floor of the cabin. We kept it there because it was the only light we could use inside during bad weather, and because we thought it too hard a job to fasten it anywhere outside high enough for it to be seen. Besides, we were many, many miles from any traffic line. We had seen only one vessel since leaving Iceland, and that was a steam trawler near Cape Farewell, on her way home, perhaps to Reykjavik, nearly a fortnight back. We brewed some tea, made a good meal, and turned in. I lay upon my bunk, fully dressed and with sea boots and an oilskin jumper on, so that I might be able to go outside without a moment's delay if it should become necessary. The cabin was completely closed. I looked out two or three times more to keep myself awake than for any other reason. 
If the yacht should swing round, we knew that we must go out to shift the boom, but I was tired and sleepy. I had been up more or less all the night before, and the prospect of having to keep awake the whole of this night as well made me feel only the sleepier, and I dozed off. A tremendous crash woke me. It filled the boat with a sudden and terrible noise which struck on my mind like a blow. In a fraction of a second, I was neither tired nor sleepy. I sprang from my bunk and tried to collect my thoughts and make out where I was. The lamp had gone out, leaving the cabin in pitchy darkness. What could a noise so fearful mean but the most desperate straits for the Joan and for us? We were to be drowned, and that cabin seemed an awful place for the last struggle. Let it be at least in the open. Fumbling around to find the hatchway, I failed for a long, long time, several seconds, I suppose, to get my hand on the right spot. I did not know which part of the cabin I was in, nor which way I was facing. Then by chance my hand hit against the slide, and I pulled it back. I clambered out and looked around. It was not so dark outside, but I could see what had happened. The mainmast had broken off a foot above the deck, and it was lying alongside in the water, together with the mainsail and all the attached gear. The summit of every wave seemed to be sweeping over us one after another. I felt astonished that the yacht did not founder straight away. Perhaps we had a fighting chance, and if so, there was obviously two things to do at once. The water must be pumped out, and the wreckage must be got away from the boat's side. I wondered that it had not already pounded a hole in her. As I leaned over the side, I saw the jagged end of the mast hit the planking above the waterline, but it was not a hard blow. The gear there was on the hole, lying without any such violent motion as I had expected. I felt for the pump. It had gone overboard, and there was no water in the cockpit. Turning to the cabin entrance, where I now saw Jackson's head appear, I shouted, The master's gone! Get me a knife, and you, bail her out! You'll have to do it from inside with a pail! I could speak these words distinctly, only by making a special and slow effort to enunciate each syllable. He handed me his magnificent sheath knife, and I blessed him for finding it so quickly. I left him to do his job while I did mine, and there followed a half hour or an hour, I do not know how long it took, during which we spent our strength and energy at the maximum rate. While I slithered about the deck on all fours, clutching at anything to keep myself from going over the side, and trying to trace in the darkness the ropes that still held the gear that was lying overboard, Jackson slung out the water from the cabin into the Atlantic. He scooped a bucketful from round his feet, lifted it seven feet up and slung the water high over to leeward so that it shot yards away from the boat. I grinned to myself and thought what a strange figure I must cut. Boots and clothes were full of water. I felt hot and parched with thirst. And as I went to and fro along the deck, clutching an open knife with which I cut away those ropes that I could not pull clear, I felt like an efficient murderer. And if at that moment I had met anybody whom I could have considered with justice as being responsible for this state of affairs, who knows what would have happened to him. At last, I had cleared away everything so that the wrecked gear was held only by the forestay from the stemhead. This I thought would do temporarily, and I came to lend a hand with the bailing. Joyful news awaited me. I'm getting it under control. It's below the cabin floor now. Those words told me that the end was postponed. They meant that the boat had done her little bit, and that from this moment the issue of the fight would rest with us, our endurance and cunning. We got out a warp and succeeded in tying the end of it to the forestay, which we then cut loose. 
By this means we were enabled to clear the gear some 15 fathoms away from the boat and yet keep hold of it for use if we should ever be able to get it aboard. But I knew in my mind all the time what would happen. We had to tie the wreckage to the bows of the boat and the sea anchor was already tied there. The two sets of gear would be bound to chafe each other. And they did. In the morning, both had gone and the boat drove as she and the wind and the waves settled in among themselves. After this warp had been paid out and secured inboard, we turned to see what else was to be done besides the primary and essential work of bailing. The water still poured into the boat so fast that one of us had to keep bailing pretty constantly. If it was left for ten minutes, you had to work so much the harder to reduce it to a reasonable level inside the boat. The level outside the boat was, of course, as unreasonable as it had been since the start of the spell of bad weather. We soon discovered that the covering board on the starboard side had been torn up for a distance of six feet. This planking had not gone overboard and we were able to lash it roughly in place and to stop up the gaps in the part of the deck with blankets, small sails and spare canvas. This very much reduced the quantity of water that poured in whenever the yacht was swept by a wave top. Bailing now required only the work of one man for half his time. Next, we saw to the mizzen. The bumpkin had broken, one half had disappeared, the other I secured upon deck. The mizzen boom was slashing about with no sail upon it, and this too I brought in board. The sail itself, a stout linen trysail, was whipping hard straight out from the mizzen top. It had torn itself free of the shackle on the boom and the lacing and the mast hoops, and was held only by a shackle at the masthead. Since I had so simplified the mizzen gear as to do away with the halyard, we were unable to take down this sail, and it slashed hard in the wind, keeping always straight out at right angles to the mast. Next afternoon, from some cause which I do not understand, it coiled itself round the mast long enough for me to hurry out and put a line around it. The sail was unharmed, only the smallest sign of chafe showed in spite of its effort for sixteen hours to flick itself to shreds. It really must have been made of good stuff. These matters attended to, we stepped down into the dark cabin. To my amazement, I stepped upon a pile of further wreckage. What's the matter here? I asked. Well, most of the contents of the boat have gone there into the bilge, said Jackson. The floorboards are up and they are mixed with the cushions and the contents of your bunk. There are the tools and the sextant and the sack of potatoes, some tins of biscuits and an earthenware jar and Lord knows what besides. I've shoved some things on my bunk and on yours so as to get room to stand and bail. And what's as bad as anything... All the matches are in the bilge, too. Not a dry one in the boat. I opened the small cupboard at the foot of my bunk. Only the day before I had put there a fresh packet of matches. They felt dry, and when the first match lit without difficulty, Jackson burst out with words of relief. We relit the riding lamp and saw the state of our cabin. It was as bad a wreck inside as out. You squirm up forward out of the way, said I, and let me clear up this mess a bit so that one of us can take a rest. When I've straightened out your bunk, I'll toss you for who has first go. The floorboards were found, and most of them replaced. Not all, however, for the platform upon which they were laid was no longer so large as it had been. The bunks had been pushed inwards some three inches, and we had to leave out one board. It was certainly no added convenience to live with a big slot in the floor. The remaining lumber we put upon my bunk, which was no longer habitable, because it lay beneath that part of the deck which had been torn up. The other bunk we made as much like a seductive sleeping place as we could. By the aid of a couple of sails and three blankets, all of which were merely moist, 
We fashioned a kind of snuggery. Then, of course, Jackson won the toss and crawled in. We thought watches of one hour would meet the present case better than longer periods. An hour was not enough to satisfy either of us for sleeping, it is true, but an hour's bailing was long enough to produce a real feeling of satiety for that form of exercise. I took my hour. I soon perceived that there were two ways of doing it. You could bail slowly and steadily, or you could bail hard for ten minutes and follow this period by ten minutes rest. I chose the former method because whenever I stopped exerting myself, I shivered with the cold. By chewing steadily at biscuit and bailing steadily at water, I endured my hour and called the next watch without remorse. He looked at me in an unfriendly way, but he got out. As I could not well get into our bed with wet clothes on, I stripped, wrung the water out and rubbed down. Then I crept into the bed hole, and in ten minutes I was warm and happy. When my hour was up, a very short hour it was too, I crawled out as loath as loath could be. Then I pulled on my wet things and resumed the everlasting bailing. We kept this up till the afternoon of the next day, when Jackson discovered where most of the water was now coming in. The top strake had been lifted from the transom forward, leaving a gap an inch wide and three feet long. Since the yacht was putting the whole of this below the water about twice a minute, there was a great deal of Atlantic Ocean making a circular tour, in by the stern and out by the pail. We stuffed our best socks into the opening, and from then on a man had no need to spend more than a quarter of his life bailing. Two or three times, however, there was a call for double bailing. We grew smart and skilful at this game. The mate heaved up a full bucket, which I took from him and tipped overboard. I was somewhat surprised myself to find that I could keep this up. I had to hold on to a cleat with one hand, while with the other I seized the pail by the rim, stretched it out till it was over the side, turned it upside down and returned the pail to the mate. It became a drill habit. And I still have a vivid recollection of one breaker, that caused us to drill at this double bailing. I was standing outside in the cockpit and saw the thing rear up over our quarter. I swear it was quite 30 feet above me and I had to cock up my head to see the top of it. If I thought before that it was all over with the Joan, I thought it very decidedly now and it was just beginning to break. I grew sick as I looked up at it and calling out to Jackson to hold on, I flung myself over the open hatch and gripped hard. It filled my exterior again with water and laid the yacht right over. Then she righted and we double bailed hard. In the evening, we increased our spells to two hours so that the man off watch might get some sleep if he could. During the night, the wind began to moderate and the next day we were able to dry the blankets we were using. The day after that, it was sunny and almost calm. These two days enabled us to nail the broken covering board down properly into place, cork it, and cover it over with some stout Willesden canvas. After that, no water got down. It merely soaked through. The hole left by the top strake was covered with sheet lead. Inside, we tidied the cabin, forced the bunks as far back into place as we could, and made a strut of biscuit tins across the cabin floor to keep the bunks from falling inwards. We threw away those beds which were really soaked, and we kept the remainder to dry. We never did dry them. My bunk was turned into an organised lumber room and storehouse, we kept there all the material and tools that we might have to use in a hurry. We made places there where we could jam cups, marmalade pots, plates and a teapot. Finally, we set a big jib from the stem head to the mizzen top and sailed south. Jackson did practically all the repairs to the outside of the Joan while I was at work inside the cabin, sorting things out, getting the bunks forced back into place 
and putting up a strut to keep them there. His job was by far the more difficult. The wind and water pretty nearly numbed me whenever I helped outside, for sometimes the work there required two men. In order to replace and fasten the covering board, he had to tie a lifeline round his waist to keep him from being rolled overboard while he lay full length across the deck. The water that washed over the spot where he lay entered by way of his trousers and came out by way of his shirt. While he patched the gap aft, he had to lie head downwards and every roll of the boat to starboard dipped both his head and his work under. When he wanted to go on short rations at that time, I refused to agree. It was not true foresight to eat little food during such heavy expenditure of physical energy. Then we discussed plans. Where should we sail? This seemed ridiculous to ask. We knew we should have to sail wherever the wind blew us. Still, we could do something. We could put up our jib when the wind was fair and take it down when the wind was foul, and we could put the boat upon whichever tack we chose, and a little at least depended upon that. I was for making all the southing we could while Jackson was for westing. The difference, in my opinion, did not really matter. Circumstances, meaning the wind and the awful jib, drove us southwest or thereabouts, and we made about 60 miles in less than a week. The second point to be settled was the length of our watches. No arrangement appeared more satisfactory than the regular ship watches of four hours, with two dog watches of two hours each in the evening. We carried on with this at once. Thirdly, we agreed that our object must be to make for a line of traffic so that we might be picked up. The yacht would have to be abandoned. St. John's lay some 500 miles southwest of us, and our way there would take us across the nearest line of steamers, and since we might be a long time before being picked up, the chances, in fact, being much against our ever seeing a vessel at all, we determined to put ourselves upon small rations of food and water. We had a fair supply of potatoes, which we thought it foolish to ration, because it was certain that they would go mouldy if we kept them longer. For one meal in the day, we permitted ourselves as many potatoes as we liked. Drinking water was to be rationed severely, and to help us out we decided to do without salt altogether. We certainly boiled the potatoes in seawater, but the salt from this, so far as it impregnated the potatoes, was all we ever had. And we ate the potatoes as they were, skins and all. Bully beef was to be used at the rate of one tin a day for the two of us. Jackson agreed to give up coffee and drink tea instead. He was largely influenced in this by the knowledge that all the coffee had been spoiled by bilge water and had been thrown overboard. I agreed to drink weak tea and go without sugar. Three meals a day were served. Breakfast at 8am consisted of tea, biscuit and marmalade. Lunch at 1pm was a biscuit with your share of bully. and Dinner was laid at 7pm and was composed of potatoes and the meat remnants which you had restrained yourself from eating at lunchtime, always supposing that you really had restrained yourself. When I came to write up my log, I could not for the life of me remember whether we had been dismasted on the Thursday or the Friday, these being the first two days of September. After much pains in the effort to recall events that might decide the point, I came to the conclusion that it was on Friday. Jackson agreed with me, although he too was doubtful. We kept our day book regularly according to the usual custom after that, on the understanding that we had met with the accident on Friday, and it was only when we were picked up and were able to learn the true date that we discovered our error. We were one day in advance. This put our calculations out when we came to make a couple of observations and work out our position. After we had been picked up, I remembered enough of the result of these calculations to know that allowing for the error in the date, 
Our sextant had not been badly damaged, although it had been twice thrown out of its case and the contents of the case had been scattered about the boat. The top of the case had been burst completely off and we found the instrument upside down on the forecastle bunk a yard away from its home. It must have been a tough instrument indeed. The watch that served us for a chronometer had remained in its box uninjured. Water had soaked into the box and round the watch but had not passed its outer casing. The cotton pad upon which it lay was wrung out and dried as dry as we could make it upon the anchor lamp and the watch kept the same good time as before. Our two anchors and the thirty-odd fathom of chain we slung overboard, they were of no further use to us. We wanted the space they took up and we did not want their weight. There was nothing else of any weight or plain inutility or we should have slung that overboard too. The mizzenmast worried us. It wobbled wildly and threatened to pull up the bolt which held the starboard shroud. So we screwed a channel plate to the transom and fastened the shroud there and we jammed and lashed the mizzen boom in the place of the broken bumpkin and then set up a backstay to the mizzenmast. We wished we could set up a spar to be a jury mast in place of the main mast which we had lost. Two plans were discussed. Should we unstep the mizzen and put it where the main had been, or should we set up the bowsprit as a small main mast? We never decided this problem. From this time onward, everything was perfectly plain and straightforward. The man off duty had to run into the sleeping bunk. There he could sleep or talk or eat or smoke and do whatever he chose so long as he did not get up and obstruct the man who was on watch. The latter had first to keep an eye on the bailing. Sometimes when the weather was good, there was no bailing to do. At other times, when the weather was bad and we were swept again by water, some bailing was required. He was supposed to sail the boat if he could, but he was the one to decide whether he could or not. We found it inadvisable to attempt any sailing at night, this was partially because the jib was more of a nuisance than otherwise, unless you sailed with the wind abeam or abaft the beam, and yet with the wind dead aft or near aft, the thing refused to work. The upper part of it always fluttered and flapped, and if the wind was light, the claw of the sail banged against the top sides of the boat. With the wind anywhere aft, the jib wound itself round its luff and reduced its sail area to nothing, and the luff was never tight. We were afraid to set it as tight as we could have done for fear of pulling out our one remaining mast. The smaller working jib behaved even worse than the big one. I think a special name ought to be applied to this rig of ours. If we did not watch carefully, it used to shove the yacht around onto the opposite tack. A second objection to night sailing was the cold. We could scarcely muster a single suit of warm clothes between us. Our oilskins were wet too, and we could not get them dry. On small washings, with a cold wind blowing and spray coming over most of the time being clothed none too warmly and having no chance of ever drying a coat once it was wet, we thought it silly to stay outside in the cockpit at night, although the mate tried it once for ten minutes. It was sound policy to save ourselves, for we might get another bad gale that would require all our energies once more. So at night, if not by day, the watch sat and smoked and read and wrote and thought, and, well, anything he liked except sleep. I'll be hanged if I could do that. If you do not believe me, you try a cold wet floor for a bed and a biscuit tin for a pillow. Even sitting was inconvenient. I could sit on the biscuit tin barricade, a seat that would have been satisfactory if the boat had been steady and still, but as things were I had to jam myself against Jackson's bunk board on the other side, and on the other side I had to push with my feet. The opposite bunk was too full and too wet to be considered as a seat. The floor would have been good if it had been dry or if we had had any dry thing to cover it up with. The barricade made a fine backrest which the mate used and praised, 
but he did not stick to it. He found another place where, wedging himself in a space enclosed by the mast, the barricade, the cupboard known as the toilet saloon, and the pantry shelves, he swore that he had been able to sleep. I am not sure what he really meant by this word, but I am sure that he did not oversleep, for he woke me at the appointed moment. We had a small quantity of tobacco that was dry enough to smoke, and a large quantity that was wet enough not to be smoked. This wet tobacco we tried to dry by packing it round the anchor lamp, which was kept burning night and day to save our matches. Smoking we looked upon as a luxury, and we enjoyed it as such. By day we kept a distress signal flying at the masthead. I do not think that this was really necessary, for the sight of so small a boat in these waters would have been looked upon as distressing enough by any ship that saw us. By night we kept a good lookout so that we might show a light to attract attention if we should see any ship whose attention we could attract. The lookout was by no means keen, for we did not expect to see anything at all for two or three weeks at the earliest. I myself used to look around about every half an hour. And so we went on till September the 7th, when after dinner, Jackson stepped outside to look round the black horizon. Just come and tell me what you think of this light, he said. I'm not quite sure whether it's a star or what it is. He said afterwards he had been considerate of my nerves. Nerves? He knew all the time that it was a boat. It did not want two glances. There were two mast lights and a green. I slid back and brought out the foghorn with a recommendation to Jackson to blow it for all he was worth. One blast at short, regular intervals, and I set about preparing a light signal. We had no flares ready. This was only natural. I had been drying some cotton waste in order to make a paraffin flare, but it had not yet been finished. There had been no hurry, for we thought it impossible that we should sight a vessel for a long time to come. I pumped up one of our primer stoves and lit a paraffin jet. It showed a fine, big white light, but it went out quickly when I put it into the wind outside the cabin. So the mate went on with a foghorn while I lit the primus again and let it burn indoors until it burst into proper heating flame. Then I raked out the regulation ship's flare lights, which I always carried aboard. They were all wet, too wet to take fire in the ordinary way. So I held one in the hot flame of the primus and in a few seconds it sputtered into blazing life. This I handed out to Jackson, who dropped the foghorn and held the flare as high as he could. I proceeded to lay out more flares in readiness to use when the first one should be extinguished. We allowed a minute to pass after the first one had gone out, and during this time I made another paraffin flare for continuous use. By means of a little dry sacking, a pint of paraffin and a very little petrol to give the flare a start, we soon had an efficient signal light going on in a bucket. After we had burnt our second regulation ship's flare, we saw by her lights that the vessel was indeed heading for us. Next, I spent ten minutes gathering together all the small articles that I wanted most and placed them in a big kit bag. Then I went outside to see after things there and to give Jackson a chance to collect some of his gear. Not that this mattered much, for it seemed to me that it would be an easy thing for the steamer to lower a boat, and in that event we could easily save everything of value. When the ship's boat was then taken up again, our stuff would go up with it, and we should at least save a considerable amount. The ship's lifeboat would be nearly twice as big as the Joan, and would be capable of holding all she carried. We put the kit bag on deck as soon as Jackson had put his treasures into it, and I remained on deck to watch. We did not know what method the steamer would adopt to get us aboard, and we must be guided by circumstance. They spoke English, and we told them that we wished to be taken aboard, and that we would abandon the yacht. The engines were stopped, and the steamer slowly drifted down upon us until a rope could be thrown and caught. We hauled a warp which they had tied to the line, and Jackson tied it round the bits. 
but with a pull so directly upwards, he found that he was obliged to hold it there. While he was doing this, I had fastened a second line to the yacht's stern, and the men on the steamer then hauled her round so that she lay pounding in the swell against the ship's side. I saw that the yacht was moving slowly and steadily back along the ship's side, and in the darkness, a ladder appeared in sight. Seeing then that this ladder was moving by and that it would in a few minutes be gone, perhaps beyond recall, I told Jackson to climb up. As soon as he let go, the head rope the ladder went by all the quicker, and seeing that I might easily lose my chance of getting aboard if I attempted to save our precious kit bag, I grabbed at the bottom rung, just in time. We had muddled the salving of our gear utterly, and we had no further chance of doing it. The steamer was put on her course once more, and as she forged ahead, she brushed the Joan out of her way, and I watched with sorrow the gleam of her white hull in the blackness of the night, before she disappeared behind us to sink in the next gale. Well, that's the end of the book, The Cruises of the Joan by W.E. Sinclair. I hope you've enjoyed it. If you like these readings and you'd like to hear more, consider going over to patreon.com forward slash the Mariner. And then we have more books which are exclusive to the Patreon platform. So as the Joan disappears into the night, I bid you farewell. I hope wherever you are and whatever you're doing, you are safe and sound. And there'll be a new book in the Mariner's Library tomorrow. Cheers. Cheers.